What's your most memorable performance on a Disney cruise ship? Does one stand out amongst the others, either because something really funny happened during the performance or just because it was just so fun for you to do? (laughs) (laughs) A few performances coming to mind. DCL Duo fans, before we dive into tonight's episode, just a few quick announcements. First, we want to let everyone know that we have started a newsletter. So we are trying to publish out a newsletter once a week with some of our thoughts on all the latest Disney Cruise Line news and happenings. And in some weeks, there's a lot of news. And in some weeks, there's less. But we're hoping to publish out a newsletter at least once a week to let folks know what we're thinking about the latest Disney Cruise Line news. If you'd like to subscribe to that newsletter, you can do it in one of two ways. You can head over to dclduo.com, scroll to the bottom, and we've got a little box where you can enter your email address, and that will subscribe you to the newsletter. Or you can head to dclduo.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A. ACK.com and subscribe to our newsletter over there. So if you're interested in subscribing, head over, check it out. Also, just wanted to remind all of you out there that we do have a voicemail line. So if you're ever inclined to leave us a voicemail to ask a question or provide some feedback, feel free to call 402-413-5590. That's 402-413-5590. If you leave us a voicemail over there, we will take a listen and we may even include it in our show. So feel free to ask questions and leave feedback. Love getting a listener voicemails. Last We've got a very special group of listeners out there that every so often we need to pause and thank specifically because they help make this show happen each and every month. Those are our Patreons. So if you're unfamiliar, we do have a Patreon page that you can go subscribe to. We link to it off of our website or you can head over to patreon.com slash Duo to choose from one of our monthly support tiers. We really, really appreciate all of our Patreons. And so briefly, in no particular order, we want to thank Dennis Keithley, Robbie and Jillian Abney, Lauren Rice, Brian Call, Ashley Darling, Cindy Leichner, Robert Estrada, Doug Young, Ashley Norton, Adrian Vanzuli and Emily Vanzuli, Drew and Haley Curry, C.T. Sweet, Susie Cooper, Christopher Vorabeck, Daily MTB writer who we know to be fan favorite Josh out there, Dave Hale, Brett Gresham, Chad Swindoll, Jonathan Heil, Steve Creasy, Jennifer Swart, Chris Braga, and Steve Elsis. Thank you to all of our Patreons out there for making this show happen each and every week. And with that, on to our episode. Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of the DCL Duo Podcast, brought to you by my path unwinding travel and Sam. We're bringing some actual magic to the show today. Not just Disney magic, yes. but like real magic. I am super excited. I don't know if you're excited, but I'm excited. I'm super excited. We don't even need pixie dust for this kind of magic. All we really need is this amazingly wonderful gentleman who has always has a deck of cards with him, Siegfried Tiber. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks to you. It's a pleasure. I'm very, very excited about this. Yeah, we are too. My gosh, we've gotten to see you on board the Disney Wonder on two different occasions. I'm trying to remember the first time we saw you, but it was it was months and months ago. And then I know the second time we saw you because that's the first time we actually met you in a, sort of a personal way. But we're so thankful that you've joined us. We know you've performed a lot on the you know, on Disney ships in the last few last couple of years, and um, you are an LA based magician. Although we know you didn't grow up in LA, so 
I'd love to kind of hear more about your background. I, I know I've seen you on a couple of shows, again, on the cruise ships, but also on television. And so, uh, but our audience may not be familiar with you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll kind of dive into how you became a magician as well. Absolutely. With that in mind, let me formally introduce myself. As mentioned, my name is Siegfried, Siegfried Tiber. My father was born and raised in Austria. That explains the name. However, I was born and raised in Ecuador. Ecuador, that explains the accent. <laughs> that is the way I would often introduce myself when I'm performing on a stage. Many, many years ago, someone told me, uh, I went to this workshop led by a well-known magician within the magic community. I performed uh, for him so he could give me some no notes and pointers. He said very kind things about my work. And then he said, you should really introduce yourself. You should clarify your background because if you don't, the audience spends the first 20 minutes of your show thinking, where on earth is this guy from? Is he Italian? <laughs> Maybe he's from Israel, but the name, that's a German name. <laughs> that from Austria, I was born and raised in Ecuador. I went to school, high school, college, university over there. When I was, long story, very, very short. When I was 18, I, I enrolled at university for mechanical engineering. Just a few months after that, Someone lent me a book out of nowhere. Someone lent me a book, a thick book, a thousand and one easy card tricks. I started to study this one trick relentlessly. I practiced for several weeks before ever showing it to anybody. The first time, my first performance, I gathered my family in the living room. I showed them this card trick I had been practicing for the longest time. They freaked out. I freaked out at their freaking out. I fell <laughs> in love with magic. I was 19 at the time, still um, in Ecuador. Fast forward five years into the future, I got my degree for mechanical engineering. I told my parents I wanted to do card tricks for a living. <laughs> I turned into magic full-time for about two years. Uh, I was doing magic full-time in Ecuador. And after that, I moved uh, to Los Angeles to pursue magic. Uh, and that's been, oh boy, almost... Actually, a little over 10 years ago that I moved to Los Angeles. Wow. How did your parents react when you said, I want to pursue magic? I've got this degree in mechanical engineering, so I could be maybe building planes or building other or medical devices or some other kind of, you know, engines, uh, but I want to do magic. Exactly. They were furious <laughs> for like 48 hours. They, they were furious. They were upset because they felt I had betrayed them. I got the degree and now it turns out the last five years of my life. And they paid for my career. So luckily, I graduated without any debt. Mm -hmm. And now I want to do something completely different. They were very upset. But then again, they knew how involved and excited I was about magic. And within these five years that I have been learning magic at the same time that I was going to university, I was started to be hired for private parties, corporate gigs on a somewhat regular basis. So being a full-time magician didn't seem that far-fetched. Long story short, my parents, it, it took them a little while to adjust. Of course, it was hard for them. But ever since then, they, they have been very, very supportive. I know I'm one of the lucky ones. Parents have been my biggest cheerleaders. Oh, that's amazing. Now, how does one 
learn magic, right? Obviously, your first card trick you you learned from a book of card tricks, but I, I'm sure there's only so much you can learn from books. At what point do you do you expand your learning? I don't know. Do you apprentice with another magician? Do you go to some kind of school for magic? I mean, how does one learn to be a magician? But you're absolutely right. There's only so much that you can learn from a book. And if you ask um, 10 magicians how they learn their craft, there will be some overlap, of course, but you might as well get 10 different stories. Some people start telling life because someone in the family knows a magic trick or two. Some people watch a performance and they get hooked and they, they seek for a mentor. Uh, in this day and age, I know many people who, who have been into magic or maybe five, 10 years who learned from YouTube. They saw maybe David Blaine, street mm -hmm. magician, do a thing. Uh, they saw a performance on YouTube and then you go down that rabbit hole and you learn from there. Countless different ways. In my specific case, as mentioned, it was this one trick I learned from a book. Shortly after that, about five, six months after, I had the extreme good fortune of meeting somebody who would become my first mentor. Now, Ecuador is a tiny country, only 13 million people. So still to this day, the magic community is practically non-existent. However, I had the extreme good fortune of meeting this person who was very knowledgeable and he was also very generous and willing to share his knowledge. He taught me magic tricks and techniques and he taught me all about the psychology of magic. But I think that mainly for me, most importantly, he taught me to care about magic, to see it as a craft that requires a lot of time and attention, but also that pays back immensely. Because there are some tricks, techniques that you need to really practice for a while before you can perform, present it to anybody else. But like in my case, when, when I first performed that first trick for my family, getting to see people excited about this, about, about it, put a smile on their faces, that pays off all the effort in the world. And besides that, uh, a lot of my knowledge I've acquired from books. I've always enjoyed reading both magic and nonfiction, fiction, literature, etc. I've had a few other people in my life I've considered mentors. And the other big, big, big component is performing in front of an audience, being willing to fail and trying it again. There was a well-known figure in the art of magic, a Spanish magician by the name of Arturo de Ascanio. He would say that medicine is a humble science you learn in front of a patient. Magic is a humble art form you learn in front of an audience. There's no replacement for flight time, stage performance time. So it's all that, trying to find ways to acquire all those kinds of knowledge. Now, I feel like as a, a close-up magician or sleight-of-hand magician, the way you use your hands is just 
Very, very, very important. I wonder, did you have any kind of background as a musician or or something that sort of helped you, maybe not training, but having this sort of natural ability to move, be very sort of dexterous with your hands? First of all, thank you. I think that as a compliment. Yes, it absolutely (laughs) is meant as one. Yeah. Um, No formal training, but for me, it has been a back and forth between learning techniques and learning sleight of hand and then observing how my hands move and adjusting and adapting. Many people believe that to be a magician, you need to be naturally gifted. You need to have talent. I, in my mind, talent is a myth more than anything. Uh, This is something that I say in performance sometimes. Uh, I do um, a memory demonstration in which I memorize, we shuffle a deck of cards and then I memorize the order of the entire deck of cards. And then I distribute the cards to different people. And I tell this person, you have the two of clubs, the four of diamonds, da, 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 et cetera. And after the perform- the after this demonstration, I point out, you know, uh, a few years ago, I got interested in the subject of human memory. And the reason I got interested is because I always thought I had a terrible, terrible memory. And mm-hmm. at some point, I discovered that like a muscle memory can be trained. And I quote Steve Martin, the comedian, he would say, thankfully, perseverance is a great substitute for talent. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that deeply in my heart. I think that for most anything you do in life, perseverance and dedication trumps talent. If you want to be a basketball player, it helps to be very tall. Uh, Michael Phelps, the the, uh, Olympic medalist, the swimmer, uh, because he has achieved so much success, there have been studies made about him, and it's fascinating. Uh, Michael Phelps, that human being was anatomically designed for swimming. His body is the perfect match for swimming. So you could account that as talent, but there is no doubt in nobody's mind that that person has worked hard to achieve what he has achieved. So in my mind, uh, it's mostly perseverance and dedication. I think that in magic, and I can only imagine this translates to everything else. For me also, a main, main, main component of it is interest in what I do. Sleight of hand magic, like many other pursuits in life, requires a lot of practice and dedication. For the first 10 years of my involvement with magic, I was practicing sleight of hand techniques in front of a mirror for 10 to 12 hours a day. If you are not excited about it, it will be unbearable. For me, 10 hours felt like, oh my goodness, it's night already because time flew by because I was enjoying what I was doing. Yeah. I'm really curious to know, I mean, you probably started your career as a magician doing magic in Spanish, your native language. And now you have to do it in English. You live in LA, you perform in, in, you know, different clubs and theaters across the United States, as well as internationally and on Disney Cruise Line. And those are all done in English, right? How was that transition from, you know, you're having to concentrate, obviously, on a lot of different things when you're performing. How does one do that when you're having to do it 
not in your native language, but perhaps in your second or third or fourth language? Nowadays, after 10 years of living in the U.S., it has become easy and it has become second nature. However, it was hard. The transition was hard. Of course, as you mentioned, I I started performing in Spanish and the U.S. and to some extent, the U.K. as well have influenced the whole world around them. In Ecuador, in all of Latin America, we get a lot of influence from the U.S. in the form of movies, media, TV, etc. So... When I was 23, around the time that I moved to the U.S., I think I could very proficiently read and write in English. If you hand me a whole novel, 500-page novel in English, easy for me because I'm used to it. Uh, in the uh, if you go to the movie theater in Ecuador, usually movies are not dubbed, but Captioned, I guess. Yes, so you title. would be subtitled. You would be listening to the original format in English. So I was fairly comfortable reading and writing in English, but transitioning to speaking, which means having conversations, listening, and and taking that information in, processing, and being able to reply, that was a hard transition. To some extent, I made a conscious decision of trying to take distance from the Spanish-speaking community here in Los Angeles. Because uh, here in Los Angeles, you can find pockets of population where you don't really need to learn English. I Mm -hmm. made an effort of, I'm going to speak English every single day of my life, whatever happens, all communications, all emails, all everything I will do in English. For the first three, four years, speaking on the phone was such a burden because you don't get the benefit of facial expressions and mouth reading. So, oh boy, it, it was hard. I would lead, if my phone would ring and this would be an unknown number, I would literally start to sweat because I would get so tense and nervous. And I, I think I overcame that by doing then again, experience and, and, and practice doing it. There's no way around it. Today, sometimes people ask me this question. It, it comes across often, of, of course, the question of language. And I have realized that nowadays, many of my impulse reactions are in English. <laughs> when I work out, I try to work out regularly. But if I'm doing push-ups, I count one Two, three in English, which means that's not conscious thought. That's just whatever comes first. If I stub my toe on the furniture, I swear in English. Yeah, yeah. You think in English now because you've been here for so long, right? Your inner monologue is now English as opposed to Spanish. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Now, I know when you came to the United States and when you moved to L.A., you took acting classes. Is that right? Can you yes. tell us about that experience? And I know you weren't seeking to become a movie star. I know you've said that before. And I, I thought that was kind of hilarious. But tell us, why did you decide to take acting classes in LA when you weren't seeking to become an actor? Because of magic. As a magician, you would always hear that acting training, whether formal or informal, or informal, 
can greatly contribute. My first mentor back home in Ecuador, this person I met a few months after I got interested in magic, he always planted that idea in my mind. Um, And it's common knowledge, so to speak, within the magic community. You know the name Harry Houdini. Of course. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Harry Houdini took his stage name. Harry Houdini was Erich Weiss. That's his real name. Harry Houdini was a stage name. He took that stage name from a French performer called Robert Houdin. Houdin is famous within the magic community for having said that an actor, that a magician is an actor playing the role of a magician. I don't have real magical powers like Harry Potter, so I have to (laughs) play this character of somebody who has magical powers or can do extraordinary things. When I'm on a stage, and this is the approach most magicians take, I play slightly looser, bigger, bolder version of myself. But Siegfried on stage is Siegfried off stage, let loose without many inhibitions. But it's still me. That said, uh, acting training, I knew that would help me as a magician. So when I moved to LA, I went to acting school and I got a degree in acting, I, I, I did a two-year program because I knew that would contribute to magic. Uh, for I, I think for me, the main, main, main takeaway, actually, give me two. Two main takeaways from acting were how to work from a script, knowing that you can have a script and you can internalize that script to the extent that it should sound organic. Mm -hmm. I tend to be very uh, script-oriented. If you see 10 of my shows, they will be very similar. Of course, the show changes every time because there's interaction with the audience and that part is unscripted. And I would try to take every opportunity that I can. If somebody says something really funny on the stage, I'll go that way. But otherwise, I have the script to fall back onto. So for me, that was a big takeaway from acting. Many magicians fear that if you memorize a script, you will sound scripted, you will sound rigid. But Daniel Day-Lewis, he doesn't sound scripted because he has worked on his craft and he knows the script inside out. That also means that you have to lean a little heavier into the craft of acting, which Mm -hmm. is a whole craft in and of itself. Point being, for me, main takeaways, learning to work from a script and also stage presence, how to stand and speak and listen when you are standing on a stage, which doesn't come very naturally for most people. Then again, a back and forth between trying, doing, failing, reevaluating, trying to do better the next time. It's that perseverance you spoke about earlier, it sounds like, coming into play. And I'm so curious, Siegfried, since I feel like every performer sort of points to that moment when it was like, this was my break. This was my big break. This is what the break I had that let me keep doing this for a living. What was that for you? When did that come and what was it? Very, very specific moment that was a turning point for me was 
maybe three years into being interested in magic. Uh, and when I was still going to university, my mentor, uh, he was an established magician in Ecuador. So he was doing performances in formal theaters and et cetera, et cetera. And there were a few of us who had been learning from him. And about three years in, he organized this event, this performance, where it would be him plus four students on a big theater, 300 people that at the time felt, oh my goodness, the, the Walt Disney Theater at the Disney Wonder sits about 900 people. So nowadays for me, that feels, oh, 900 people, that feels comfortable. But 12 years ago, playing for 300 people felt also intimidating. And I had a 10-minute spot on that show. And I think back to that day often. I remember walking on that stage and I remember walking out. I really don't remember what happened in those 10 minutes. It blacked out from my mind. Maybe the adrenaline blocked it out, but it's a surreal experience. I remember walking in, walking up. What happened in between? Not a clue. People tell me they enjoyed my performance. I know <laughs> I did a trick with a rope. I know I did two tricks with cards. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Point being, for me, the main takeaway was, even if this was such an anxiety-inducing performance, I survived and I enjoyed it and people seemed to enjoy it and I got paid some money for that. Then again, the purpose of the gig was not making money, but it was for our mentor to push us down the cliff, fly if you can. <laughs> but even then, I got paid money for that. Can I do this for a living? Wouldn't it be amazing if I can do this full time? And of course, a lot of my day as a professional magician involves sending emails and logistics works and coordination and blah, that is not super, super exciting. It's maintenance, communicating with a prospects and clients and blah, but all that goes into being on a stage in front of an audience. For me, back to your question, Brian, <laughs> for me, that was a big breakthrough, thinking that is it possible to devote my life to this? And after that day, the seed was planted off, maybe I can do this for a living. I'm curious how you got involved with cruise ships and doing your show at sea. When did that point come and, and how did it happen? Luck and serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> I started working with Disney almost two years ago. Disney has been the only cruise line I've worked with. Before working with Disney, I knew that the cruise line industry was big. I didn't know to what extent because it's massive. As we speak, there are literally hundreds of cruise ships circling the Caribbean, circling the West Coast. It's uh, massive. Anyway, I, I knew it was a thing. I knew cruise ships wanted entertainment, but it had never been on my radar. I have a few friends who have been pursuing cruise ships for many years. Some of them have been 
on cruise ships. Some of them have been trying to get themselves into that line of work for 10 years, still unsuccessfully. Point B, I never really had my aims on it. One day I get a call. Hey, Siegfried, I am the director of entertainment for Disney Cruise Line. And um, someone pointed us to your work. Uh, would you be interested in having a meeting and maybe discuss working with us? I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. <laughs> we go into that first meeting. And I realized this person whom I met and, and uh, who is my main contact person still to this day, he is an angel. I love him all so much. He has been also supportive. And I realized that going into that first meeting, I thought this would be a let's get to know each other and maybe you send us an audition tape. Who knows? I realized later that on this first meeting, they were already sold. And on this first meeting, they offered me, hey, there is these five itineraries. Would you like to take them? I was like, okay. And I discovered later that somebody who works as a Disney Imagineer, a dear friend of mine who likes me, likes my work, had mentioned my name. This was never explicitly said, but, but the only explanation I can fathom is that they saw the person who hires entertainment for Disney. They saw my two appearances on Fulas, Penn and Teller Fulas, and they thought, oh, Siegfried might be a good fit for this. Because then again, on that first meeting, they were already, Whoop, here's a contract. Do you want to sign? And I signed, so I, I think, I think I'm not misremembering things. They offered me five dates, five sailings because of prior commitments. I was able to accept three somewhat mm -hmm. reluctantly thinking, I don't know how this will be but because my main focus has always been performing for adults. For adults. Now I would have to perform for a family audience, which is a completely different beast. And also being away from, from my fiance now that we recently moved in together, somewhat reluctantly, I accept. And I enjoyed it very, very much. It was a very fun experience. I enjoyed the performance. I also enjoyed the time off. You, we might want to talk about that later, but as a performer, you get a lot of time off when you are working on a cruise ship, at least with Disney. Uh, but but I, I'm always working on 10 different projects. So the more time of performance I can do, the better. I, I won't get bored ever. That's amazing to me that they didn't have you like do an audition there, that they had just seen your work and were like, let's go. Because uh, I would have thought the process <laughs> would have been, let's bring him in, see if he's a good fit. Maybe we'll do a little uh, live demo here, see if we like it, have him put on his show. So that's that's impressive. I, I, I am curious, which ships have you performed on? Has it just been The Wonder or have you been on some of the other ships? It's been all four of the original Yes. Ships, Wonder, Magic, Dream, Fantasy. I'd love to delve into this adults versus child or family audience because I, I, you brought that up and I, I was actually going to ask you that. I would imagine that on land, most of your performances are in front of adult audiences, either in clubs or in large theaters. And uh, tell us about how you worked to, I don't know, change your show or how you sort of looked at, okay, I'm going to do this 
show now on Disney Cruise Line, I get to do a couple of performances for a family audience. I might get to do one smaller show for an adult-only audience. How, how did you sort of figure out how am I going to either adjust my show? I don't know if you needed to change any of language that you were using in your show, but for this Disney wholesome family audience. Let me answer the easy one first. I didn't really have to adjust language in the sense that I don't have any blue or inappropriate material. So mm-hmm. that was there was no adjustment to be made. Lucky for me. Easy. On the other hand, the adjustment from adult audiences to family audiences, that was rough. And that felt somewhat similarly to you have been performing in Spanish for six years. Now you have to perform in English. Big change. Another of those big changes came for me when lockdown happened. World closed, world went mad. And maybe two months later, I was already doing performances online, virtual performances. That felt like uh, pretty much starting from the ground up. Wow. Adult performances, uh, adult oriented to family felt like that. Some of the material I was doing, I was able to adapt to a family audience with a few considerations in mind that the adult span of attention is much longer and um, flexible than the kids because Mm -hmm. in a performance for adults, you can stop the action and deliver a monologue, if you will, tell a story for two, three, maybe even four minutes, and then you get back to the action. With kids, you can't. Because if you are statically speaking for more than 30 seconds, you have lost. Wow. Another tricky aspect of it was that the kind of magic adults and the kids can appreciate is very, very different. For example, if I tell you, Sam, think of a number between 1 and 99. Don't say it away. Don't say it out loud. Don't move your lips. I don't know how to do this trick, but let's say that you are <laughs> thinking of 47 and I tell you, okay, think of your number. And I'm, I think you're thinking of a number somewhere between 40 and 50, 46, 47, right? 47. For an adult, if I can guess the number you're thinking of, that's a strong effect. Wow. Right. For a kid, you're like, so what? <laughs> the big deal. Yes, you guessed. Because kids up to a certain age haven't developed that abstract thinking that would make that kind of magic trick very impressive. Mm-hmm. There is a whole branch of magic that we magicians call mentalism, like that, creating the illusion of reading minds, predicting future events, etc. That is a lot of what I do. Kids don't care about that because mentalism usually deals with abstract thoughts. For kids, you want colors and something that they can see. Otherwise, they won't follow because it requires guiding their thinking through the garden path and they won't care. They, They won't appreciate the impossibility of it. So that goes to say that a lot of the material I used to do, and I still do for adult audiences, not a good fit for kids, which means that I had to develop a lot of material. uh, And I also had to develop material outside my comfort zone. 
because I, I like to think of myself as a storyteller more than anything. If this is the way when, um, let me give you my pitch. If I first got interested in magic through playing cards, card tricks, card magic. And the way I would introduce a deck of cards, the way I, perf- I begin a performance of card magic, instead of saying, hey, here's a card trick, take a card. I would take the deck out of my pocket and I would tell people, you know, for the last 15 years of my life, a single day hasn't gone by when I haven't held a deck of cards in my hands. Sometimes I fall asleep holding them and they are still there when I wake up in the morning. When I leave home, I carry them in my left jacket pocket, the one closest to my heart. You know, my friend Jared, a magician and poet from Dallas, Texas, he pointed out that if a bullet ever crosses my path, the cards could literally save my life. (laughs) Now, I'm well aware that there is a fine line between obsession, dedication and madness. But let's try an experiment. See, that is my way of saying, hey, let me show you a card trick where I jump into a 40 second monologue about why I think this instrument is all so beautiful. With kids, you have to go, hey, you look a card, take a card, and we're going to do something super (laughs) excited about it. (laughs) All that narrative had to be reframed in a very different way, which forced me to flex different muscles, which was a very fun challenge. Initially, it took a few months to uh, get there and feel comfortable with it. And back to our conversation about um, that they essentially hired me called to, to my surprise. I'd like to think that what they saw was my approach to magic, my level of energy. I can only imagine that the fact that I have an accent, uh, the, the, the way that I'm Latino, I speak with my hands a lot, that level of energy plays well for a family audience. At its very core, the material that I was doing, I had to adapt and shape that a lot for a family audience. Well, you have a lot of personality when you perform. Uh, You have a lot of personality in real life, but you have a lot of personality. It's like like you said, it's you're playing an outsized sort of version of yourself. You're not playing a a completely different person. It is Siegfried. It's just Siegfried without any inhibitions, right? Siegfried Excellent. to the to the max, right? Yeah. I love Siegfried that. On, Siegfried on seven cups of coffee. On <laughs> seven <laughs> cups of coffee. When you started to do shows with this, you know, uh, family audience, is that when you brought in sort of different props other than just cards, of course, not that you don't, not that you do only card tricks. I know you do other things, but I, but that's your bread and butter, I'm going to say. I'm going to use that term. Your bread and butter is card tricks. But you also have brought in like Rubik's Cubes and other types of things that are more colorful and just a little bit maybe different from a visual perspective. Is that done really for that family audience? To some extent, it was. I was doing tricks, performance pieces with props other than cards already. For example, the Rubik's Cube, I had been experimenting with that for a little while. However, that is a good fit for the family audience. Mm -hmm. Let me go on a little tangent on the Rubik's Cube. I've been playing with that for a number of years. However, for kids under 15, a Rubik's Cube is meaningless. Nowadays, many kids have a 
brother or sister who plays with a Rubik's Cube. And Rubik's Cube is, has come back in vogue a little yes. bit to, to some extent. However, if you or your brother or your cousin don't do a Rubik's Cube, you have no idea what that thing is. What is that cube with the silly colors? Whereas anybody over 25, 30, they know what a Rubik's Cube is because they grew up with it. If you ask, (laughs) this is something, and I think I did this uh, at the Disney Wonder when you were there. Let's think only of the adults for for a moment. Don't think of the kids. But if you ask a room full of 100 people, 100 adults, raise your hand. Who has ever played with a Rubik's Cube? 99 hands will go up. Play with a Rubik's Cube might mean you took it, you turned it, you got frustrated, put it down. (laughs) True. However, if you ask kids under 20 who has played with one of these, I don't know. Maybe the kid who is interested and who can solve a Rubik's Cube in five seconds. But besides that, not at all. So when I'm performing for adults, I can take a Rubik's Cube and I I tell people, hey, I want to show you, to, to share with you, to invite you to play with one of my latest obsessions. I take a Rubik's Cube. And the whole room goes, because we get so excited. When I'm performing the Rubik's Cube, the Disney theater, I have to put it in context because they have no idea what it is. I take out the Rubik's Cube and I tell people, I ask my nephew who is six years old, I ask him if he knew what this is. He didn't know. He didn't care. He went back to Netflix. (laughs) I told him this is Rubik's Cube, the world's best-selling Still, he didn't know. He didn't care. He went back to Netflix. So I told him this is what his parents played with before they had iPhones. That got his attention. (laughs) See, to the extent that I need to put the Rubik's Cube in context for Mm -hmm. for the five-year-olds in the room. Now now the five-year-olds are thinking... Oh, that is like Netflix. Yes. <laughs> now it's exciting oh, for them. That's hilarious. Our our son likes to say, to ask us, is that something they had in the 1900s? <laughs> oh, oh, 1900s. Oh, that hurts. It just hits you right in the heart, right? It's like it's just a knife in the heart every time he says it's 1900. Wow. And sadly, the answer is yes. 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 That is something we played with in the 1900s, in the (laughs) 1980s, to be specific. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, DCL Duo fans, you know, we get the question all the time, should I use a travel agent to book my next Disney cruise or should I just book with Disney directly? And I'm going to tell you, if you have that question in the back of your mind right now, you should stop what you're doing and head over to mypathunwinding.com slash DCL Duo. The folks over at My Path Unwinding provide an amazing service. They are so knowledgeable and so friendly. We rely on them ourselves to book our family vacations and they provide an amazing service. And the best part is you don't pay anything extra for it. Disney, other tour providers, 
operators and other cruise lines have built the cost of their commission into their pricing. So if you're booking directly, you are just paying that money back to the provider when you could be spending it on the kind of service you would get from My Path Unwinding Travel. You've heard from their agents on our show. They are so knowledgeable, so giving of their time. They know so much about Disney Cruise Line, Sailing Concierge, other cruise lines, other all-inclusive vacations and adventures by Disney that if you have a vacation in mind, they are the ones to book it for you. So again, head over to mypathunwinding.com slash DCL Duo so they know we sent you their way. Thanks, My Path Unwinding, for sponsoring the show. And with that, back to our episode. Let's dive into, you know, when you're on board a a Disney Cruise Line ship for a contract, how many performances you do. Let's get into some of the logistics to the extent you can share with us. Um, You know, how many family shows you get to do on a particular sailing and how many adult shows you get to do on a particular set. We've experienced this. So I'll, I'll spoil it for our audience. Brian and I know the answers to this question, but we would love to, for you to share with us so that those who have not been on a Disney Cruise Line itinerary or have not been on a ship with you can understand uh, what they will get if they get on a ship and you're one of the performers. Absolutely. From somebody being a guest as a Disney ship, what you would get is every day you have countless activities. Every day you have a main event at the Walt Disney Theater, the big theater that sits about 900 people. For example, at a five-night sailing, you night number one, you would get what they call a Broadway caliber production, and they are. For example, you would get Frozen the Musical with a cast of 20 people and flashes and lights and special effects, and it's fantastic. That's night number one. Night number two, you would get another Broadway caliber performance, The Beauty and the Beast. Night number three, you would get a variety act, maybe a juggler, a magician, a a ventriloquist, etc. Night number four, you might get a movie, a movie that is in the theaters. Nowadays, I can, right now as we speak, I think they are doing uh, the new Ant-Man movie, uh, Quantumania, which is in theaters. And you can sit aboard the Disney ship. Night number five, you would get another um, Broadway quality performance. And besides those being the main events, you get workshops on it and countless other things. From the variety performer, you, in addition to the family show, the big event at the Walt Disney Theater, you usually get a workshop that takes place during one of the days, early in the day, maybe around noon or 1 p.m., and you get an adults-only show late at night around 10, 10, 15 p.m. From the guest's perspective, then again, your days are packed or can be packed Mm -hmm. with uh, events and activities, or you can just decide to chill by the pool all day long. (laughs) Absolutely. On the side of the performer, I have it real easy. (laughs) I feel a little guilty for this. More often than not, I'm performing on five-night sale, which means day number one, I'm off. I chill by the pool. Day number two, I'm off again. Paid vacation. Thank you very much. (laughs) Day number three might be my day at the Walt Disney Theater. 
that means that I have two shows because what happens is that they split the guests. Some of the guests go to early dinner. But let, but let's start for the show. You go to an early show at 6 mm-hmm. p.m. and then you go to dinner later and the other half of the guests go to dinner early and late show. So every performance takes place twice a day Walt Disney Theater, opposite dinner sitting. That makes sense, right? Absolutely. Yes. So on my end, that day, the theater day is a busy day because rehearsal starts around 3 p.m. The first show is at 6 p.m. It's a 45 to 60 minute show. Then you reset. Then the next show is around 8 p.m. You do the show and then you have to pack your props, get out of there because they have a big show the next night. That said, that day is busy, busy, meaning I'm I'm on duty from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m., which is still a pretty (laughs) relaxed schedule. Day number four, I might have, let's say, the workshop, uh, which is a 30-minute workshop. For that, there is minimal tech rehearsal. If the workshop is at noon, I show up 15 minutes earlier with my cup of coffee. We check, uh, test the mic. And as people are coming in, I'm hanging out there, welcoming everybody. Hey, thanks for coming. We're going to start in about five minutes. I chill. I chat with people. I show them one card trick for 30 minutes. Off I go to keep enjoying (laughs) my day. And Probably the next day I would have the adult show, which is also a 30-minute performance. Then again, because it's a formal show, I might have to show up an hour before showtime to test the mic, test lights, go through the cues, and the show is 30 minutes. But then again, it's pretty relaxed. All that goes to say that when a five-night sailing, I have a full day where I do two theater shows, I have a workshop, and I have the 30-minute adult show. All the rest of the time, I'm chilling by the pool. I I like to think I'm I'm very diligent in, I record every single performance I do, and I watch it afterwards, and I give myself notes, and I try to make the show a little better every time. But That's when I'm on duty during the performance. And I understand this is not the case in most cruise lines. But Disney is very, very generous with their performers. I understand that I've come to understand since I've been working with them that that on a ship, you have to manifest the guest manifest and the crew manifest. If you are on the crew manifest, that means you're a Disney employee. And they are very strict with you, of course. I, When I'm on a ship, I'm a guest performer, which means I'm on the guest manifest, which means that whenever I'm not performing, I can do whatever I want to do. I can be chilling by the pool. I can go uh, to the other shows. I have nice dinner with all the other mm-hmm. guests on ports of call. I can leave the ship, go hang out. 
I'm a guest whenever I'm not performing on a right. stage. Right. It, it's definitely, I think, a different lifestyle than the, uh, I'll call them the Walt Disney stage performers. And what I mean by that is the cast of those Broadway caliber shows you're talking about earlier, because they do those stage shows, but they also do the deck shows on the pool deck. They also do um, some of the character handling work or character work around the ships. Um, everybody sort of thinks of them as stage performers because that is what they're most well known for. And, and when you see their their faces, of course, um, but they have a bunch of other jobs that they do on the ship. And when you're on the ship, you have your your one job. But as you said, you're you're sort of in the guest space. Now, when you stay on board, when you're you know, when you're working, what kind of cabin do you get? And what areas of the ship do you get access to if you're allowed to say? I get the oh, yes, I get the nice cabin and I'm allowed access wherever I want to go. Yeah. There are no... Then again, I get the exact same privileges as a guest. There is this one exception. I'm not allowed to play bingo, (laughs) which I guess is because bingo technically is considered gambling. And as a third-party employee, they don't want me gambling. And I think it would also, this might not be the actual reason, but it would be real funny if the magician gets the $20,000 jack. <laughs> that would be a little suspicious, I think. Agreed. I love it. But then again, all that goes to say that uh, I get the nice cabins and I get all the perks. Awesome. Nice. Do you get to bring someone with you, Siegfried? Yes, also that. Then again, Disney, they are very kind with their... In general, all across the board, I understand, even with crew, but especially with guest, guest performers. I'm putting the nice cabin that that sleeps up to four people. So on any and every sailing, I'm allowed to bring up to oh, three wow. guests. Chelsea, my my fiance, she has joined a few times and she pays zero money, even tips for for the crew and uh, and the dining room staff and etc. Even that is covered for her and for me. Which then again, they are very very kind in that wow. regard. I, I'm curious, do you get sick of the food when you're on board? Only because it, it can be a little bit repetitive when you're on, obviously, back to back to back to back cruises, right? You're not on for one cruise for five nights and then getting off. You're typically on for a contract of a certain number, right? And I know you said your first one they offered you was five, and then you only ended up on three just because you had some other conflicts. But generally speaking, when you're on back-to-back, yeah, do you get sick of the food? When I first started working with them, they offered me three contracts. But those three contracts were spaced probably over two or three months. A little different, yeah. Yes, yes. Sometimes, sometimes I do two back-to-back. But it's never more than two back-to-back. And more often than not, is one I'm off for 10 days, then I'm on the ship Mm -hmm. again. For reasons I don't really understand, I know that I'm not allowed to be in the ship as a third-party contractor. I'm not allowed to be there for more than 14 days. Internal logistics, who knows? All that goes to say, I don't get tired or bored of the food. I can only imagine other people would. I am a creature of habit. I wake up. 
At the same time, every morning I go for my walk, I take my shower, even on weekends drives my fiance crazy, but I'm a creature of habit. Even uh, at the Disney ships, I have the same thing for breakfast every single day. Extensive buffet. I have the same three <laughs> items every single day because that's me. Lucky me. <laughs> Are you somebody who gets on and has the chicken fingers every time? <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yep. That's me. Yep. Well, to oh, be yes. fair, our son gets the same mac and cheese at every meal. Mickey's mac and cheese. He loves it. <laughs> yeah. Siegfried, we could talk all day here, but we got to start to wind things down. I Because I wanted to ask kind of one ultimate question on my end, and then I'll, I'll pause and see if Sam has anything that she really wants to ask in addition. But um, what's your most memorable performance on a Disney cruise ship? Does one stand out amongst the others, either because something really funny happened during the performance or just because it was just so fun for you to do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few performances coming to mind. Let me give you two answers. One of those was this time where uh, I, I used to do this thing. I don't know if you saw it because I haven't done it in a little while. However, I used to bring for the last trick of the show, I would have a deck of cards with me and I would bring three kids. I, 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 I My hope is to have kids between four and seven join me on the stage. Three of them are there. And I hand them cards and I ask them to mix them in crazy ways. Mix the cards behind your back, mix them over your head, etc., etc. I call this kid, you in the third row wearing red, please join me over here. And of course, there's bright lights on my face. So I'm just making uh, the best guess that I can. And this kid comes with a puppet of sorts <laughs> on his hand that looks like a T-Rex, like Robert T-Rex thing. And I hand him the cards and he takes the cards with the Robert T-Rex puppet. And when he realizes that I want him to mix the cards, he starts to take off the puppet. And I go like, no! Kim, what are you doing? And he starts mixing the cards with this T-Rex hand. And that turned into five minutes of the show and everybody laughing out loud. And this kid dropping cards and trying to, to catch them with the T-Rex hand. It was just very funny. One of those that everything clicked. And uh, then again, it made, it made the show at least, at least, three, four minutes longer of watching these kids struggle with the thing. But it was fun for everybody, for himself included as well. He was laughing the hardest there. That made a very memorable performance. And to some extent, something I can't point to specific performances, but I can recall that warm and fuzzy feeling of a few performances. This doesn't happen every time. I can only imagine that this is similar to different performers where this doesn't happen every time, but every now and then you hit that point where all of us are on the same mm -hmm. page and all of us are laughing and cheering in unison. And it feels like for 45 to 60 minutes, all of us are part of this shared joy 
And we know that it will come to an end, but while it lasts, it's oh so glorious. To me, that is one of the great joys of being a performer. And that's also one of the great joys of being an audience member in a performance. And this can happen doing close-up magic for five people, where all of us are mm, in sync and it's delightful. Or it can happen in the Walt Disney Theater with 900 people. When it happens with a full Back theater, 900 people, all of us on the same page, the effect is amplified and can be even more lovely. <laughs> so, but, but then again, more than a specific instance, to me, is that feeling where all of us are in this together <laughs> and this is going to be so much fun. I love that. I love that. I'd love to know the, the, biggest, I don't want to call it a flop, but the biggest um, like crazy thing that went wrong. Um, if you have a, a, one that you can think of, I'm sure, I'm sure every performer has, you know, that one moment or maybe, you know, 10 moments where they're like, oh, everything just went wrong. And I'd, I'd love to hear that. It's just, those are some of the funniest things as well. Yeah. Oh, there's a few. However, one that is very present in my mind happened about 13 years ago. No, wait. Eh, yeah, 12, 11, 12. When I was still living in Ecuador, after I graduated from university and was doing magic full-time, I was, I had been experimenting with this illusion where I, where I entered the stage with a cup full of coffee. I would cover the cup of coffee with my hand. I would turn the thing upside down and then I would remove my hand to reveal that the coffee had vanished. It was a great trick. I had performed it in front of people a few times to great reactions, and I knew every single part of the illusion inside out. I had been very diligent in practicing and rehearsing. At some point, it occurs to me, what if instead of just covering the thing with my hand, what if I were to place the cup of coffee over someone's head? <laughs> And then I were to turn it upside down oh, no. to reveal that the coffee had vanished. Oh, no. What could go wrong, oh, right? Oh, no. It would be the same trick, the same illusion, but it would be much more dramatic. Right. You might see where this is yes, going. absolutely. I'm hired to do this gig for a fancy party for a, for a um, pharmaceutical company. Cocktail attire, everybody well-dressed. I enter the stage with my cup of coffee and I see this woman sitting in the first row. Big smile on her face. She will be perfect for this. I walk to her. I look at her in the eye. I ask her, do you trust me? She says she does. She does. I hold the cup of coffee over her head. I look at the audience. I pause for dramatic effect. I turn the cup upside down. The coffee doesn't vanish. <laughs> it goes all over her beautiful white dress. Oh, no. I froze there. I, I stood there for maybe four or five seconds. That felt like an eternity. I froze. She froze. The audience gasped, not in a good way. I ran to the restroom, grabbed as many paper towels <laughs> as I could. I come back. I hand her the paper towels and, and try to utter an apology. This woman, this angel sent from heaven, still with a big smile on her face. She tells me, and bear in mind, this was the first trick of the show, right? So great way to start. <laughs> she looks at me, still big smile on her face. She tells me, don't worry. I understand this was an accident. 
accidents happen, the show must go on. Oh my gosh. I was terrified. Eventually, I managed to calm myself Mm -hmm. and we continued with the performance. But but that was terrifying. And I know that I'm very lucky because this woman could have been terribly upset. She could have stopped the performance and she could have soothed me the next day. Right. right. Luckily, she had a sense of humor. Yeah. And she was a gracious person. You know, I'm sure there's times where you you have different people volunteering in the audience and you have to be very careful who you choose. <laughs> yes. And more often than not, when someone is eagerly volunteering, this person might enjoy being the center of attention mm. and they might feel a little too comfortable on a stage. Mm-hmm. So usually that's not the person to go to. <laughs> that's not surprising. <laughs> Well, Siegfried, I think we have reached that point in our show where I need to hand you over to Sam for some arbitrary questions, some arbitrary rules, and a dash of judgment, or the round we call rapid fire. So Sam, you want to take it away? I would love to. So Siegfried, we told you this before we started recording our show, but we love to do a round we call rapid fire where I ask you your Disney and Disney Cruise Line favorites. This is a special edition because it's a, you know about performing on a cruise ship. But I'm going to start, as I always do, with asking, who is your favorite Disney or Pixar character? Stitch. Oh, Stitch. Yes. I love Stitch. <laughs> I love it. What's your favorite Disney or Pixar movie? Up. Oh, such a good movie. But don't you cry yeah. at the beginning? It's so... Uh... Every time, three minutes singing. <laughs> and then I... Cried two or three more times throughout the movie. On, of course. Yeah. What's your favorite Disney song? For lack of better planning, I would say When You Wish Upon a Star. Yes, I love that. I love that. I'll go for that yeah. one. Yeah. Okay, when you're on a Disney cruise and you're performing, which do you prefer performing in? The Walt Disney Theater or one of the adult club spaces? Walt Disney Theater. And that has changed a lot. A year ago, I would have said the Walt Disney Theater is terrified. I'm so scared. <laughs> I've come to feel comfortable and I enjoyed very much Walt Disney Theater. Awesome. What is your favorite ship in the Disney fleet? Wonder. Disney Wonder. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the right answer. So you, you've already won rapid fire, but I'll still ask you a couple more questions. What is your favorite food to eat on board a Disney Cruise Line ship? Beef Wellington. Oh, yeah. That's one of Brian's favorites, too. (laughs) It's really good. Do you have a favorite Disney Cruise Line dessert? Yes, but I don't know what it's called. It's a spongy cake. It has no sauce on it, but it's very moist. Mm. Okay. We'll have to keep an eye out. We're going to be on the wish in about a week, so we'll have to we'll have to f- figure out if we can figure that one out. All right, what is your favorite space to just kind of hang out and relax on a Disney Cruise Line ship? Cove Cafe. Oh yes, oh, the best. Cool. Yes. Okay. My last question is a bucket list show. If you could perform in any theater in the world on any stage in the world, where would you want to perform? Carnegie Hall. Oh, yes. But you know what you have to do to get there. Practice, practice, practice. Yep. A lot. (laughs) Well, thank you for playing Rapid Fire. Uh, Before we kind of wrap up the show, um, since we're doing video on this show, of course, we'll have an audio version that we release that will have this portion cut out. But we would love to know if you could do a trick for us, maybe? I mean, let's do it. All right. (laughs) 
I, love I have no idea how you did that. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, for everyone listening in audio land, you missed a fabulous trick. And uh, we will be sure to have that up on our YouTube channel. We may even uh, break out this segment of the show and we can put it in our Facebook group for people to watch uh, this portion of the show. So fabulous trick, Siegfried. Fabulous. You've been a fabulous guest. We always love hearing about stage performers and folks coming on to Disney Cruise Line, uh, you know, not just as pure guests. And so really fun to have you on the show. Uh, do you want to let folks know where they can like find and connect with you to, to see even more of your magic and perhaps even figure out if you might be on their sailing at some point? Yes, please. I appreciate it. Um, my website, I'm most active on my website. I keep updates there on where I'll be performing. You can see a little more information about my work, the videos on Penn and Teller Fools that we mentioned. SiegfriedTiber.com, which I know my name is a handful, but please, I imagine it will be in the name of the episode. SiegfriedTiber.com. I'm also very active on Instagram at SiegfriedTiber. And we will be sure to link to those in the show notes for the episode too, to help people out. And so uh, Siegfried, just let me say thank you so, so much for taking your time to come on. I know you're quite busy, but we really, really appreciate it. And we hope to see you out on one of the ships we're sailing on at some point in the future. I sure hope so. Thank you for having me as your guest. This was so much fun. Awesome. Thank you. Well, a big thank you to all of you out there for listening this week. We really, really appreciate it. We do have another five-star review to read on the air this week from Apple Podcasts. And this one comes from Tech Michael, who writes, Excellent real-world commentary and advice. Sam and Brian do an exceptional job conveying the latest from DCL. They have actually been on many DCL cruises, on different ships, and different itineraries to bring first-hand information to their listeners. Taking it a step further, they bring in guest hosts to bring in even more depth in topics of interest. Well, thank you, Tech Michael, for that review. We really try to source some great guests for this show. Glad you're enjoying it and glad that our advice is helpful. So thank you so, so much for that review. With that, just thanks once again for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep getting great content from the DCL duo each week. We'd also love it if you'd head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you hit those five stars, that's great. If you leave us a written review along with a five-star review, we will be sure to read it on the air at the end of one of our main episodes. If you're hovering over anything less than five stars, we really want you to reach out to us so we can take your feedback. Best way to do that, head to dclduo.com to find all the ways to connect with us. It links to our podcast, our vlog, our blog, has all the ways you can connect with us on social media, has our Etsy store where you can find our fun beach bags and magnets that we designed as enthusiasts of each of the Disney Cruise Line ships, has a link off to our Patreon if you'd like to help support the show. We really, truly appreciate each and every one of our Patreons for helping to support the show each and every month, has a link off to our show sponsor, My Path Unwinding, where you can get more information about booking a fabulous vacation, which also really helps to support our show. All the things are there, including a way you can sign up to be a guest on the show if you'd like to share your Disney Cruise Line experience. Most importantly, you can always email us at dclduo at gmail.com if you'd like to connect with us, or you can call our voicemail line if you'd like to leave us a message. We love to include the voices of our listeners in our show. Just dial 402-413-5590. That's 402-413-5590. And that will head straight to our Google Voice voicemail line. The DCL Duo podcast is not affiliated with Disney Cruise Line, the Disney Company, or the Disney family of theme parks. The views expressed on the show are solely those of the individual on the podcast and in no way reflect the views of the Disney Company or Disney Cruise Line. If you have questions about a Disney cruise or a Disney vacation, please contact Disney directly or your own travel agent or the great folks over at My Path Unwinding Travel. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time for another fabulous Disney adventure with the DCL.
BL Duo. Good night. <laughs>